Section 45 of Gray's Anatomy, Part 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Defroster. Anatomy of the Human Body, Part 1, by Henry Gray. The Femur, Part 1. The femur, the longest and strongest bone in the skeleton, is almost perfectly cylindrical in the greater part of its extent. In the erect posture it is not vertical, being separated above from its fellow by a considerable interval, which corresponds to the breadth of the pelvis, but inclining gradually downward and medialward, so as to approach its fellow toward its lower part for the purpose of bringing the knee joint near the line of gravity of the body. The degree of this inclination varies in different persons, and is greater in the female than in the male on account of the greater breadth of the pelvis. The femur, like other long bones, is divisible into a body and two extremities. The upper extremity, or proximal extremity. The upper extremity presents for examination a head, a neck, a greater and lesser trochanter. The head, or caput femoris. The head, which is globular and forms rather more than a hemisphere, is directed upward, medialward, and a little forward, the greater part of its convexity being above and in front. Its surface is smooth, coated with cartilage in the fresh state, except over an ovoid depression, the fovea capitis femoris, which is situated a little below and behind the center of the head, and gives attachment to the ligamentum teres. The neck, or column femoris. The neck is a flattened pyramidal process of bone, connecting the head with the body, and forming with the latter a wide angle opening medial word. The angle is widest in infancy and becomes lessened during growth, so that at puberty it forms a gentle curve from the axis of the body of the bone. In the adult, the neck forms an angle of about 125 degrees with the body, but this varies in inverse proportion to the development of the pelvis and its stature. In the female, in consequence of the increased width of the pelvis, the neck of the femur forms more nearly a right angle with the body than it does in the male. The angle decreases during the period of growth, but after full growth has been attained it does not usually undergo any change, even in old age. It varies considerably in different persons of the same age. It is smaller and short than in long bones, and when the pelvis is wide. In addition to projecting upward and medialward from the body of the femur, the neck also projects somewhat forward. The amount of this forward projection is extremely variable, but on an average is from 12 degrees to 14 degrees. The neck is flattened from before backward, contracted in the middle, and broader laterally than medially. The vertical diameter of the lateral half is increased by the obliquity of the lower edge, which slopes downward to join the body at the level of the lesser trochanter, so that it measures one-third more than the antero-posterior diameter. The medial half is smaller and of a more circular shape. The anterior surface of the neck is perforated by numerous vascular foramina. Along the upper part of the line of junction of the anterior surface with the head is a shallow groove, best marked in elderly subjects. This groove lodges the orbicular fibers of the capsule of the hip joint. The posterior surface is smooth and is broader and more concave than the anterior. The posterior part of the capsule of the hip joint is attached to it about, about one centimeter above the intertrochanteric crest.
The superior border is short and thick and ends laterally at the greater trochanter. Its surface is perforated by large foramina. The inferior border, long and narrow, curves a little backward to end at the lesser trochanter. The trochanters. The trochanters are prominent processes which afford leverage to the muscle that rotate the thigh on its axis. They are two in number, the greater and the lesser. The greater trochanter, or trochanter major, tro greater, great trochanter, is a large, irregular, quadrilateral eminence situated at the junction of the neck with the upper part of the body. It is directed a little lateralward and backward, and in the adult is about one centimeter lower than the head. It has two surfaces and four borders. The lateral surface, quadrilateral in form, is broad, rough, convex, and marked by a diagonal impression, which extends from the posterior superior to the anterior inferior angle, and serves for the insertion of the tendon of the gluteus medius. Above the impression is a triangular surface, sometimes rough for part of the tendon of the same muscle, sometimes smooth through the interposition of a bursa between the tendon and the bone. Below and behind the diagonal impression is a smooth, triangular surface over which the tendon of the gluteus maximus plays, a bursa being interposed. The medial surface, of much less extent than the lateral, presents at its base a deep depression, the trochanteric fossa, or digital fossa, for the insertion of the tendon of the obturator externus, and above and in front of this an impression for the insertion of the obturator internus and gemelli. The superior border is free. It is thick and irregular and marked near the center by an impression for the insertion of the piriformis. The inferior border corresponds to the line of junction of the base of the trochanter with the lateral surface of the body. It is marked by a rough, prominent, slightly curved ridge, which gives origin to the upper part of the vastus lateralis. The anterior border is prominent and somewhat irregular. It affords insertion at its lateral part to the gluteus minimus. The posterior border is very prominent and appears as a free rounded edge, which bounds the back part of the trochanteric fossa. The lesser trochanter, or trochanter minor, small trochanter, is a conical eminence, which varies in size in different subjects. It projects from the lower and back part of the base of the neck. From its apex, three well-marked borders extend, Two of these are above, a medial continuous with the lower border of the neck, a lateral with the intertrochanteric crest. The inferior border is continuous with the middle division of the linea aspera. The summit of the trochanter is rough and gives insertion to the tendon of the psoas major. A prominence of variable size occurs at the junction of the upper part of the neck with the greater trochanter and is called the tubercle of the femur. It is the point of meaning of five muscles, the gluteus minimus laterally, the vastus lateris below, and the tendon of the obturator internus two gemelli above. Running obliquely downward and medialward from the tubercle is the intertrochanteric line, or spiral line of the femur. It winds around the medial side of the body of the bone, below the lesser trochanter, and ends about five centimeters below this eminence in the linea aspera. Its upper half is rough, and affords attachment to the iliofemoral ligament of the hip joint. Its lower half is less prominent and gives origin to the upper part of the vastus medialis. Running obliquely downward and medialward from the summit of the greater trochanter on the posterior surface of the neck is a prominent ridge, the intertrochanteric crest.
Its upper half forms the posterior border of the great trochanter, and its lower half runs downward and medialward to the lesser trochanter. A slight ridge is sometimes seen commencing about the middle of the intertrochanteric crest and reaching vertically downward for about 5 centimeters along the back part of the body. It is called a linea quadrata and gives attachment to the quadratus femoris and a few fibers of the adductor magnus. Generally, there is merely a slight thickening about the middle of the intertrochanteric crest, marking the attachment of the upper part of the quadratus femoris. The body or shaft, or corpus femoris. The body, almost cylindrical in form, is a little broader above than in the center, broadest and somewhat flattened from before backward below. It is slightly arched so as to be convex in front and concave behind, where it is strengthened by a prominent longitudinal ridge, the linea aspera. It presents for examination three borders, separating three surfaces. Of the borders, one, the linea aspera, is posterior, one is medial, and the other lateral. The linea aspera is a prominent longitudinal ridge or crest on the middle third of the bone, presenting a medial and a lateral lip, and a narrow, rough, intermediate line. Above, the linea aspera is prolonged by three ridges. The lateral ridge is very rough and runs almost vertically upward to the base of the greater trochanter. It is termed the gluteal tuberosity and gives attachment to part of the gluteus maximus. Its upper part is often elongated into a roughened crest on which a more or less well-marked rounded tubercle, the third trochanter, is occasionally developed. The intermediate ridge or pectineal line is continued to the base of the lesser trochanter and gives attachment to the pectineus. The medial ridge is lost in the intertrochanteric line. Between these two, a portion of the iliacus is inserted. Below, the linea aspera is prolonged into two ridges, enclosing between them a triangular area, the popliteal surface, upon which the popliteal artery rests. Of these two ridges, the lateral is the more prominent, and descends to the summit of the lateral condyle. The medial is less marked, especially at its upper part, where it is crossed by the femoral artery. It ends below at the summit of the medial condyle in a small tubercle, the adductor tubercle, which affords insertion to the tendon of the adductor magnus. From the medial lip of the linea aspera and its prolongations above and below, the vastus medialis arises, and from the lateral lip and its upward prolongation, the vastus lateralis takes origin. The adductor magnus is inserted into the linea aspera, and to its lateral prolongation above and its medial prolongation below. Between the vastus lateralis and the adductor magnus, two muscles are attached, via the gluteus maximus inserted above and the short head of the biceps femoris arising below. Between the adductor magnus and the vastus medialis, four muscles are inserted, the iliacus and the pectineus above, the adductor brevis and the adductor longus below. The linea aspera is perforated a little below its center by the nutrient canal, which is directed obliquely upward. The other two borders of the femur are only slightly marked. The lateral border extends from the anterior inferior angle of the greater trochanter to the anterior extremity of the lateral condyle. The medial border from the intertrochanteric line at a point opposite the lesser trochanter to the anterior extremity of the medial condyle. The anterior surface includes that portion of the shaft which is situated between the lateral and medial borders. It is smooth, convex, broader above and below than in the center. 
From the upper three-fourths of the surface, the vastus intermedius arises. The lower fourth is separated from the muscle by the intervention of the synovial membrane of the knee joint anabursa. From this upper part of it, the articularis genu takes origin. The lateral surface includes the portion between the lateral border of the analinea aspera. It is continuous above with the corresponding surface of the greater trochanter, below with that of the lateral condyle. From its upper three-fourths, the vastus intermedius takes origin. The medial surface includes the portion between the medial border and the linea aspera. It is continuous above with the lower border of the neck, below with the medial side of the medial condyle. It is covered by the vastus medialis. The lower extremity, or distal extremity. The lower extremity, larger than the upper, is somewhat cuboid in form, but its transverse diameter is greater than anteroposterior. It consists of two oblong eminences known as the condyles. In front, the condyles are but slightly prominent and are separated from one another by a smooth, shallow articular depression called the patellar surface. Behind, they project considerably, and the interval between them forms a deep notch, the intercondyloid fossa. The lateral condyle is the more prominent and is the broader both in the anteroposterior and the transverse diameters. The medial condyle is the longer and, when the femur is held with its body perpendicular, projects to a lower level. When, however, the femur is in its natural oblique position, the lower surfaces of the two condyles lie practically in the same horizontal plane. The condyles are not quite parallel with one another. The long axis of the lateral is almost directly anteroposterior, but that of the medial runs backward and medialward. Their opposed surfaces are small, rough, and concave, and form the walls of the intercondyloid fossa. This fossa is limited above by a ridge, the intercondyloid line, and below by the central part of the posterior margin of the postellar surface. The posterior cruciate ligament of the knee joint is attached to the lower and front part of the medial wall of the fossa, and the anterior cruciate ligament to an impression on the upper and back part of its lateral wall. Each condyle is surmounted by an elevation, the epicondyle. The medial epicondyle is a large convex eminence to which the tibial collateral ligament of the knee joint is attached. At its upper part is the adductor tubercle, often referred to, and behind it is a rough impression which gives origin to the medial head of the gastrocinemus. The lateral epicondyle, smaller and less prominent than the medial, gives attachment to the fibular collateral ligament of the knee joint. Directly below it is a small depression from which a smooth, well-marked groove curves obliquely upward and backward to the posterior extremity of the condyle. This groove is separated from the articular surface of the condyle by a prominent lip across which a second, shallower groove runs vertically downward from the depression. In the fresh state, these grooves are covered with cartilage. The popliteus arises from this depression. Its tendons lie in the oblique groove when the knee is flexed, and in the vertical groove when the knee is extended. Above and behind the lateral epicondyle is an area for the origin of the lateral head of the gastrocnemius, above and to the medial side of which the plantaris arises. The articular surface of the lower end of the femur occupies the anterior, inferior, and posterior surfaces of the condyle. Its front part is named the patella surface and articulates with the patella. 
It presents a median groove which extends downward to the intercondyloid fossa and two convexities, the lateral of which is broader, more prominent, and extends farther upward than the medial. The lower and posterior parts of the articular surface constitute the tibial surface for articulation with the corresponding condyles of the tibia and menisci. These surfaces are separated from one another by the intercondyloid fossa and from the patellar surface by faint grooves, which extend obliquely across the condyles. The lateral groove is the better marked. It runs lateralward and forward from the front part of the intercondyloid fossa and expands to form a triangular depression. When the knee joint is fully extended, the triangular depression rests upon the anterior portion of the lateral meniscus and the medial part of the groove comes into contact with the medial margin of the lateral articular surface of the tibia in front of the lateral tubercle of the tibial intercondyloid eminence. The medial groove is less distinct than the lateral. It does not reach as far as the intercondyloid fossa, and therefore exists only on the medial part of the condyle. It receives the anterior edge of the medial meniscus when the knee joint is extended. Where the groove ceases laterally, the patellar surface is seen to be continued backward as a semilunar area close to the anterior part of the intercondyloid fossa. This semilunar area articulates with the medial vertical facet of the patella in forced flexion of the knee joint. The tibial surfaces of the condyles are convex from side to side and from before backward. Each presents a double curve, its posterior segment being an arc of a circle its anterior part of a cycloid. Footnote. A cycloid is a curve traced by a point in the circumference of a wheel when the wheel is rolled along in a straight line. End of footnote. The architecture of the femur. Note. The following paragraphs are taken almost verbatim from Kosher's article in which we have the first correct mathematical analysis of the femur in support of the theory of the functional form of bone proposed by Wolf and by Roux. End of note. Koch, by mathematical analysis, has shown that in every part of the femur there is a remarkable adaptation of the inner surface of the bone to the mechanical requirements due to the load of the femur head. The various parts of the femur taken together form a single mechanical structure wonderfully well adapted for the efficient economical transmission of the load of the acetabulum to the tibia, a structure in which every element contributes its medicum of strength in the manner required by theoretical mechanics for maximum efficiency. The internal structure is everywhere so formed as to provide it in an efficient manner for all the internal stresses which occur due to the load on the femur head. Throughout the femur with the load on the femur head, the bony material is arranged in the paths of the maximum internal stresses which are thereby resisted with the greatest efficiency, and hence with maximum economy of material. The conclusion is inevitable that the inner structure and outer form of the femur are governed by the conditions of maximum stresses to which the bone is subjected normally by the preponderant load of the femur head, that is, by the body weight transmitted to the femur head through the acetabulum. The femur obeys the mechanical laws that govern other elastic bodies under stress. The relation between the computed internal stresses due to the load of the femur head 
and the internal structure of the different proportions of the femur is in very close agreement with the theoretical relations that should exist between stress and structure for maximum economy and efficiency and therefore it is believed that the following laws of bone structure have been demonstrated for the femur one the internal structure and external form of human bone are closely adapted to the mechanical conditions existing at every point in the bone two the inner architecture of normal bone is determined by definite and exact requirements of mathematical and mechanical laws to produce a maximum of strength with a minimum of material end of section forty five recording by defroster